and welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Emma Babbler, and my guest today is Professor Samudu Adapadu. Professor Adapadu is here today to discuss a book she edited and contributed to, The Cambridge Handbook of Environmental Justice and Sustainable Development, and its first chapter, Intersections of Environmental Justice and Sustainable Development, Framing the Issues, co-authored with Carmen G. Gonzalez and Sarah L. Sack. The book was published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you for joining the podcast, Professor Adapadu. Thank you for having me. Before we jump into your recent publication, we always start the podcast by learning more about our guest's background, specifically your research and scholarly writing interests. How did you become interested in the law? Tell me about the path that took you here to your position at UW Law School. Um, well, I have always had a very strong sense of right and wrong, and my siblings will tell you <laughs> more about that. <laughs> um, and I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, I didn't think I'd become a law teacher when I was five years old, but teaching was my passion. Um, so I came to be interested in law later. Um, so after law school, and law is an undergraduate degree, in Sri Lanka and in many parts of the world, actually. Um, I decided to pursue a master's degree in law, and I was thrilled when I got a scholarship to go to, go to Cambridge University in England. Um, and it was around this time that the Chernobyl nuclear accident took place. And that really got me thinking about the role of international law and environmental issues. And I was wondering, why nobody um, sued the USSR, for example, because mm -hmm. there was a clear link between, you know, what they didn't um, and the disaster. Um, so that was the time that I really th started thinking about those issues. Um, and this was at a time, of course, I'm dating myself now. <laughs> uh, this was at a time when no law school was even teaching environmental law as a subject. Oh, right? Wow. No text. Yeah, no textbooks um, had even a chapter on environmental law. So this was at the very beginning of uh, environmental law globally, really. Uh, although I know in the U.S. Um, um, there have been many developments, and U.S. was the first uh, country actually to adopt environmental laws. Um, so after I returned to Sri Lanka, um, I worked for an environmental NGO, and this was the turning point for me. I really enjoyed working on environmental issues. Again, this was a, a very new field, so not a lot of people knew about it. Um, and so I was learning as I was working, and I was fascinated by all the um, issues uh, that were coming up, all the problems that people were facing. We used to go on field visits to, you know, inspect these um, uh, polluting factories and things wow. like that. And it, yeah, it was fascinating. Um, and I knew then that I wanted to dedicate my career to teaching environmental law. And I went back to Cambridge to do a PhD uh, in international environmental law. And actually, I was the first person in Sri Lanka to do a PhD in environmental law. 
That's so cool. <laughs> I did not realize that it was such a relatively recent field. It is a, a relatively new field compared to other areas of law, like, you know, yeah. contracts and property. We have, you know, had them for hundreds of years. Um, as to how I came to UW Law School, um, I accompanied my husband who came to UW Madison to do his PhD. Um, so that's how we ended up in medicine. And I have been associated with the law school uh, in various capacities um, since 2002, first as a visiting scholar, and then I started uh, teaching as an adjunct in 2003. Uh, in 2006, I um, started working as the associate director for the Global Legal mm -hmm. Studies Center, which was just established. Uh, maybe a couple of years before that. And uh, yeah, then my latest position is running uh, the research centers at the law school. Uh, and I have continued to teach since 2003. Um, so one thing led to another and we ended up staying in Madison. And um, despite the winters, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great place to be even in the cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we love it too. So I know you touched on this a little bit in the last answer, but how did you become interested in the topic of environmental justice as it pertains to the global south? I know your article and uh, the book touched on that a lot. So as I said, I always had a very strong sense of justice and growing up in Sri Lanka and walking there, um, I saw firsthand the negative effects of environmental issues and development activities on people. Um, and I have also traveled quite a bit and have seen the negative effects of poverty, yeah. particularly in South Asia region and the need to um, raise the living standards of people. Um, and I realized that one cannot separate economic development and environmental issues from people. Um, and it's always the poor and marginalized who are disproportionately affected, whether it's a proposed coal power plant, deforestation or pollution from factories. Um, it's always the poor people um, or minorities who are affected. Mm -hmm. And um, they also lack any political clout, right? Yeah. Uh, they don't have a way of uh, organizing. Um, they don't have a voice. Um, so giving them a voice at the table is very important. Um, and they don't know what their rights are. So, you know, um, giving them an idea of what they're entitled to, what they can do um, is very important. And, and um, I also worked for a human rights NGO in Sri Lanka many, many years ago, of course. <laughs> um, and I realized that these two groups rarely work together, although there were similar issues. Um, and they could have done so much by pooling resources and fighting yeah. for issues together, but they really did. And, you know, um, human rights NGOs felt that um, their issues are more tangible and more immediate and more important in some ways, whereas environmental NGOs uh, struggled to show that you know, their work was important and particularly because I think it was a new field. Yeah. Uh, 
and also some of the uh, consequences take longer to materialize, right? So uh, it's harder to show that these is issues are important when you see immediate uh, consequences of human rights violations. And um, as you um, may know, Sri Lanka went through um, a 30-year civil war. So yeah. there were daily human rights violations that people saw, whereas it, the negative consequences of environmental issues were less visible. Um, so that was something that I observed and later um, I saw at the global level too, the way human rights um, activists and NGOs and environmental NGOs didn't really work together until quite recently, actually, when I say recently, maybe 10, 15 years ago, okay. um, they started working together on climate change because it's a huge issue and climate change has negative consequences on human rights. These uh, two camps came together um, to work together um, climate change and human rights. But, you know, people still have this sort of human rights versus environment um, sort of mentality. Um, but, you know, people are part of the environment and you cannot speak of one without speaking of the other. Um, so these issues are intertwined and you need a holistic approach. Um, but you still see this compartmentalization taking place. That's really interesting and it reminds me of what I read in the chapter. That it was that those two things are so intrinsically linked that I guess I didn't realize that. Um, it hadn't been treated as you know, kind of one issue uh, until more recently, but I think it's a very American point of view to kind of push it off and say, in the future, we'll deal with it. Right. And it's not as visible to those of us, you know, in the global north because those things are happening elsewhere. Yeah, and I remember many, many years ago uh, when I was working for the environmental, uh, environmental NGO, um, they came one day and uh, from court, they had filed action against some um, uh, in relation to um, a national park where there had been some people, the word they used was squatting uh, in the national park. Mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't sure whether these were indigenous people or not, uh, but the lawyers were very elated saying we they managed to evict these squatters from the national park mm -hmm. and i asked them so where did they where did the people go and they looked very surprised they hadn't even thought about it and that's how i really got interested in this link because you know sure you got a victory uh, to protect the national park but you didn't think about the people who were being evicted, right? Where did they go? Yeah. They depend on the forest for their daily subsistence and medicine and things like that. But if you don't think about the people, then what is the use of your victory, right? Um, so, I agree. So, that, yeah, um, that uh, compartmentalization was very troubling to me it's when I first started thinking about the link between the two. Very interesting. So this kind of leads into our next question. Um, so I feel like 
as someone who lives in the global north, I feel like, and is interested in environmental issues, I feel like I so often hear that as individuals, we are not able to do much on our own to help the environment because so much pollution comes from these giant corporations. Mm -hmm. And so it can feel really frustrating and helpless as an individual who, you know, wants to do something but isn't sure how one person can do anything. Um, so is there anything that we can do as individuals, especially legally educated individuals? Absolutely. We all have a role to play, especially relation to global issues like climate change where every little right mm -hmm. we are over seven billion people and by living we are contributing to climate change right of course need big bold action at the federal level at the global level that involve corporations uh, but we all have a role to play especially legal educators and as we know um, there's a lot of misinformation that's going on um, about climate change and uh, particularly in this country, oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of misinformation about a lot of things, right? Yes. Um, and as educators, we need to put the record straight. Um, I think it's very important to um, let the public know because you know, make decisions based on the information they get. And information can be can range from denying the existence of climate change to doom and gloom where you know nothing can be done um, so it's very important to give the correct information to the people and also uh, tell them what they can do uh, start by doing little things like changing the light bulbs to lead bulbs or you mm -hmm. know walking uh, shorter distances rather than driving and you know think there are lots of little things that we can do and if we if all of us do that uh, then it'll come to add up to a lot of good things right yeah um but as legal educators we have a responsibility to train future lawyers to address climate change, whether it um, comes to contract law, property law, insurance law, ad law, or international law, all these areas will be affected by climate change. Um, I think almost every area of law will have to factor in climate change. Yeah. Um, and we'll be doing a it's a disservice if we don't incorporate climate change into our teachings and prepare them for a legal career in a climate change affected world. And in addition, new areas of law are emerging um, and states have committed to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions and this requires them to adjusting to a low carbon economy. How do we do that? There are, uh, you know, new standards to come up with. Um, the, we have to make sure that this, uh, everybody is complying with this, right? Um, and in addition, of course, we have locked in a certain amount of climate change. Um, so we will see and we are already seeing the negative consequences in terms of, uh, you know, extreme weather events, uh, sea level rise yeah. um, and things like that. Um, so people have to adapt to uh, climate change consequences and issues like migration, displacement, and relocating entire communities to less vulnerable areas are also giving rise to uh, many legal issues. So we need to train our students 
to address these um, issues, not just areas of uh, existing law that would be affected by climate change, but also to address these emerging laws. And climate law has uh, developed to such an extent that there are sub areas of law, like carbon trading, for example, that requires lawyers, right? So there are lots of areas, um, new areas that have emerged where uh, our students really need to be trained. And um, I myself have been teaching a seminar course on climate change and human rights, looking at the link between the two. Um, for several years now. We are one of the few countries, a uh, few law schools uh, in the country that's actually teaching a course on climate change and human rights. So, oh, wow. I'm glad to see UW yeah. being at the forefront of that. Um, that. That's really good for law and action here. Right. And as you said, I think it's so important because if environmental law is going to touch so many or all of the areas of law, we do really have to, we do really have uh, you know, we really have to teach our students that so that they are prepared. Exactly. I mean, you know, if your property is getting affected by sea level rise, you know, um, you know, these prime properties like in Florida and North Carolina, um, California, uh, wh what do you do? There will be new floodplain areas, new insurance. I mean, many... Uh, um, states are now requiring insurance for yeah. for a lot of new things that did not exist before. So, yeah, so there are lots of new areas for students to think about, uh, for us to think about as legal educators. That's great. And I think I, I like seeing that change, too, because I, um, I went to law school here and graduated in 2015, and I don't think we talked a whole ton about environmental law in you know 2012 to 2015, but I definitely see that change now. So I'm happy to see that. Right, and if, I mean even 10 years ago we were talking about things like cybersecurity, right? Now no, <laughs> it's a huge area. So we have to keep up with the changing times. And as a, a preeminent law school, I think uh, we have a responsibility to change with the times. I completely agree. Do you see the countries of the quote unquote global elite, the global north, uh, meeting the goals of the 2030 agenda for sustainable development that you mentioned in the chapter? Um, I know that 2030 sounds really far away, but I thought about it and it's only nine years. So what I, do you think would have to change for them to meet these goals? Well, that, that's a really large conversation. Yes. <laughs> Because um, uh, despite the adoption of uh, the 2030 agenda and sustainable development goals, um, which the entire global community supported, um, nothing much has really changed by way of reducing consumption in the global north or the consumerist lifestyle we yeah. all have. Um, and also the capitalist neoliberal economic model that has contributed to all these environmental issues, especially climate change. Um, so as I said, it's a much larger conversation to have um, and not many countries are 
actually going to meet these goals uh, and i think the pandemic has also contributed to it in a way actually the pandemic has uh, contributed to less pollution because there was less driving the countries were shut down and things like that but it also contributed to more poverty um, so there, there are pros and cons when it comes to and you know the health aspects were also yeah. affected um, so um, we know that sustainable development emerged as an overarching model for sustainable for, for development, and that requires us balance economic development, environmental protection, and social development. So these are considered as three dimensions of sustainable development. But we know that primary still given to economic development, despite you know the tools that we have developed like. Uh, environmental impact assessments, licensing, and some countries require, um, some countries like Canada, for example, require um, sustainable development assessments as well. Um, our main goal is still economic development, right? And environmental protection and social development um, come second and third, if at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Um, and I'm not saying economic development is not important because, as I said, poverty um, is a big problem in many parts of the world. Um, and we really need to raise the living standards of people, but there's a way to do it. Um, Unfortunately, um, the Global South is emulating the Global North um, in their activities, and we know that it's totally unsustainable. Um, and we need to change the mindset that we should develop now and clean up later, um, which is essentially what the Global North did. Yes, exactly. Uh, but we cannot follow the same path. Um, we can no longer externalize uh, uh, pollution and hope everything will be okay in the future. Um, climate change has taught us that uh, everything won't be okay in the future. And um, it will also force us to change our ways sooner rather than later. And um, whether we like it or not, and the longer we wait, our options will be limited. So I think it will be important for us to actually start paying more and more attention uh, to climate change. And I'm uh, glad that uh, President Biden uh, has really focused on climate change um, and as the main, uh, the biggest contributor to, of greenhouse gases in the world since the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. I think U.S. leadership is very, very important. I agree. And I think it's, it's a way that we can show how to be proactive rather than solely reactive. Right, right. It's a little too late right now to be proactive, uh, totally, <laughs> because we have already caused this problem, but you're right. I mean, there's still a lot more we can do, particularly with um, issues like migration and forced displacement. Uh, we will be faced with a situation where these small island states will be uninhabitable, like yeah. places like Kiribati and Vanuatu, the Maldives, uh, which is closer to my country, um, they will become uninhabitable. Uh, 
in the future. So yeah. we have um, think about apart from the legal issues that will arise when whole countries disappear, uh, we have a huge humanitarian issue uh, at hand. So what do we do with the people? Where will they go? Right. And yeah. the, um, the refugee framework does not even accommodate this situation. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> there are lots of things that we need to think about um, and address them now before we are forced to um, deal with them, uh, like we had to deal with millions of refugees after the Second World War. Exactly. Even in the U.S., so many communities are already being uh, relocated because of climate change, or some communities are waiting to be relocated. So this is not a situation that will arise in the future. We are already facing this. Um, yeah, I know. My, my in-laws live in Florida, and I was visiting them, and we were driving along the coast, and there were just dozens and dozens of abandoned houses. And my father-in-law says, you know, you can't get insurance on these. They're just in the eye. They're just going to be hit by hurricanes over and over. So... Right. There's no point yeah. in even inhabiting them anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a sad situation. And the thing is, you know, I mean, a country like the U.S. Um, can afford to deal with the situation like this. But imagine poor countries that are already being faced these hurricanes and things like that. Yeah. How do you bounce back when, you know... You, you are facing millions of dollars in damages and so many people have died and, you know, they don't have good infrastructure. It's a really sad situation when you think about it. And especially like you said about the island nations, yeah. you know, they're so isolated. Where do you go? You can't just like, at least if you're in Florida, you can drive somewhere else. Right. But right. if you're in the Maldives or Vanuatu, you, you're kind of stuck. Right. Right. Well, our next question is, what do you hope this book contributes to the field of environmental justice? Mm -hmm. And is there anything you want to tell me about what's discussed in some of the other chapters that particularly interested you? The book, uh, we in, in the book, we tried to shed light on environmental injustices uh, around the, through a set of frameworks, legal frameworks and case studies. Um, we wanted to highlight the these case studies um, that the struggles are not confined to a particular region mm -hmm. uh, or a particular group of people. And there are commonalities in all these struggles. Um, we also wanted to show that there is a south in the north. That is, you know, there are marginalized communities in the global north that are disproportionately yes. affected. Um, and we have so many examples um, here in the U.S. Um, and there's a north in the south as well. There are elites in the south that contribute disproportionately to environmental problems. So we wanted to give um, a flavor of a range of environmental struggles across the world, both in the global south and in the global north, and to highlight some of these commonalities. So um, asking whether I have favorite chapters is a bit <laughs> like asking whether I have a favorite child. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I learned so much uh, by, uh, you know, uh, working in this. Um, and some of the chapters that stood out uh, relate to 
indigenous environmental justice, um, nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands, um, and also yeah. China cancer villages and uh, capitalism. Uh, because these um, chapters highlight that um, the underlying causes of environmental injustice, uh, some of them date back to the colonial era. And we need to um, learn from uh, indigenous traditional knowledge, for example, and their worldviews um, to address some of these environmental we are facing. Um, and we also wanted to highlight some success stories too. Uh, we didn't want the book to be all doom and gloom, uh, yeah. which there is. <laughs> um, so like public interest litigation in South Asia, for example, really contributed to highlighting um, some of the problems these marginalized communities are facing and gave rise to um, success stories. So we want highlight those success stories as well that's good to know that it's all that there it's not it's not just a downer we have some bright points to look towards and examples to strive for um, sure yeah i think we need uh, clearly we need to exactly and we can learn from the strategies that these uh, you know success stories used um, so that you know maybe we can adapt those uh, strategies to our own struggles so yeah i agree uh, so you were talking about the other chapters in the book and so it makes me wonder how does your approach differ in writing your own work and then in editing others work it's very different when you are editing somebody else's work because people have different people have different uh, writing styles, right? Yeah. So, um, so you need to uh, strive for consistency. Um, you need to ensure that there's cohesion. Um, although different people write it, you also try to sort of give it um, the editor's voice as well. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, so on the one hand, it's less work when you don't have to write the entire book yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, it's also difficult when you have to ensure consistency. Uh, and, um, and, and at the same time, you don't want to change too much because you want to retain the voice of the writer as well, right? Um, so uh, it's still a lot of work, although you don't have to write the entire thing. Um, each editor, uh, as the editor, you're responsible for content, style, and consistency. Um, and each chapter is read by at least two editors um, and goes through at least two rounds of edits. Wow. Um, yep. And then, of course, you have to go through the copy edits and the Final proofs of the entire manuscript uh, to ensure that there are no error, there are no errors, and I hope there are no errors. <laughs> I didn't notice uh, any in the part I read. <laughs> Good. Um, so it's still a lot of work, uh, but um, yeah. So there are pros and cons of writing it all, all yourself, a, a monograph as opposed to an edited volume. And of course, you have to chase after you know thirty different authors. <laughs> yes. Uh, with deadlines and things like that, whereas if it is just you, um, you know, you have to chase after yourself, find time yeah. to actually do the writing. Um, but yeah, 
uh, it, it's also uh, very enjoyable because you learn quite a lot from others. Yeah, because if you're writing your own yeah. thing, it's something that you already know you're an expert in. But when you right. are getting the work from other people, you can learn something new. I like that. Right. Yeah, yeah. So what do you hope researchers take away from your work? Well, uh, the thing is, you know, it's impossible to cover all um, regions of the world and all uh, aspects of environmental justice struggles in a single volume, right? Yeah. Uh, you're limited by space, you're limited by the um, contributors you can find, you're limited by time. Um, so um, I hope that scholars and activists will um, supplement our work and, you know, yeah. uh, continue to document their struggles um, and I think it's very important to uh, bring to these struggle bring um, these struggles to the attention of people um, to show that for one thing um, there are commonalities and the other thing is uh, you can learn from others yeah um, and if there are strategies uh, that are successful uh, you can, you know, you may be able to adapt them to your situation as well. Um, so there are several lessons from the book. I hope uh, the others would take away. Uh, one of them is that uh, these struggles have root causes elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and unless, and as I said, some of these date back to the colonial era. And unless you address these these root causes, you cannot really address these environmental injustices. Exactly. Um, and we saw these um, in relation to, say, Hurricane Katrina, for example. Yes. There, you know, the um, disproportionately minorities were affected. Um, and, you know, that's a theme that comes out so much in the book. Um, and these injustice and other forms of injustices um, are intertwined with one another um, and therefore adopting a holistic approach which is very necessary but what we do is we have a very silo mentality and that's not really um, helping the cause it's a impediment really to um, addressing these issues um, and as I said, by highlighting the commonalities in these struggles, these communities uh, engaged in the struggles can learn from one another. Um, and we also wanted to highlight the, how the human rights framework has given a voice to these marginalized communities. Um, and also those who are already marginalized or in a vulnerable situation, are more likely to be disproportionately affected by environmental degradation. Exactly. And uh, these uh, vulnerabilities intersect with one another to form even greater vulnerabilities. So intersectionality is another lens that we should adopt uh, when we are addressing these uh, injustices. I agree. And I think, I hope that the fact that UW Law School has a course in this and is kind of putting an emphasis on this can maybe help other law schools to decide to include that as a course or within their teachings as well. Because as you said, we're, we're teaching future lawyers who will 
have to deal with this in their practice, regardless of what area of law they're working in. Absolutely. So it's our duty as legal educators to not kind of drop them into, you know, the water and say, hey, I hope you can swim. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. And where can people find more of your work? I know you are an extremely prolific author and editor. Thank you. Well, the law school website, UW Law School website, I think is a good resource, um, uh, as well as Google Scholar and legal databases for um, articles I have written. It's a little harder to find book chapters, but I know uh, the library has been doing a good job posting at least um, the references to these articles. So I would say the uh, law school website is a good source. Yeah, I know we have a lot of your stuff uh, in our repository, so I will link to that. And so as always, we'll link to your scholarship, like I just said, so I'll put links to that on our podcast page. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Adipadu. We've Thank been discussing, of course, we have been discussing a book that you recently edited and contributed to, The Cambridge Handbook of Environmental Justice and Sustainable Development and its introduction on framing the issues surrounding this topic. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. To find a list of Professor Adipadu's scholarship, visit either her SSRN page or the University of Wisconsin Law School repository. As I mentioned earlier, links to both of these resources are posted along with this podcast episode at wisconsinlawinaction.law.wisc.edu. I hope that by now you are subscribed to our Wisconsin Law in Action podcast. But if you aren't, you can find us in the Apple iTunes Store, Stitcher, or Google Play, or listen to our full archive at wilawinaction.law.wisc.edu. Thank you for listening and happy researching.